Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Ed Stevens, and my able co-host, Oliver Jones. This conversation is with Lou Lee. Lou is the founder and CEO of Blooming Founders, a co-working space and support network focused on nurturing and scaling woman-led businesses. She is also the author of Dear Female Founder, a collection of letters written to their younger selves by female founders around the world. Our discussion focuses on Lou's experience as a female founder and the particular challenges faced by the growing number of female entrepreneurs in the business community. So, without further ado, we bring you Lou Lee. Okay, good morning everyone. We are here with Lou Lee, founder of Blooming Founders and author of Dear Female Founder. Now we want to speak about both of those but to give our listeners a bit of context to that and to you perhaps you could tell us a bit about your story and how you came to to start blooming founders yes thanks so much for having me um i never planned to be an entrepreneur um i'm the only child of chinese parents and my parents always wanted me to you know have that great corporate career Mm. uh, which is what i pursued in the beginning of my professional life um, so I did that, but then I kind of, you know, found out that it's not really my path. Um, too many people, too many bureaucracy holes to jump over. And um, as a result, I left my career after about four or five years. Uh, Was that Procter & Gamble? So my last employer was Procter & Gamble. I right. started out with McKinsey in, in okay. Munich um, and then moved to P&G in Geneva. Uh, spent two years there and then two years in Frankfurt as well. Um, and left uh, my role um, and yeah, set up on, on my own um, just because I figured out that I didn't really want to work for anybody else. So the conclusion was that, you know, if I can't hmm. work for somebody else, I have to work for myself. Mm-hmm. Seems valid. Um, right? I was like, it yeah. seems logical. Well, otherwise you're unemployed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, I was kind of fun employed for a while, isn't like, you know, as I was figuring out stuff, which was um, fun at the time, but obviously isn't very sustainable. <laughs> um, yeah, but I had to figure it out because I didn't really have an idea what I wanted to do when um, I started out. I just felt like I wanted to do something that I enjoy more, that I had more sort of creative control over. Yeah. So I dabbled with a few things, um, first in Zurich, um, where I had my transition phase, I would say. Mm. And then I decided to move to London because Zurich was obviously very small. Um, and I'm not really in deep tech, so you know there wasn't really much for me to, to, to do. Um, and I decided to move to London five years ago because it was just more international, more mm-hmm. enterprising. Um, and the startup scene in Berlin at the time was very rocket internet dominated. Mm. And I mentioned probably all of these like German, Swiss kind of like cities because um, I guess I'm, I'm actually German. So I was born in China, but I moved to Germany when I was six. Um, so I got all my education actually in Germany. Oh, with, cool. with your parents? You yes, mean, right? exactly. They didn't sort of ship you off to be educated? No, they didn't Germany. ship me off. Actually, <laughs> they, they, they went first and then I joined them a, la- uh, a year later okay. uh, when they kind of like settled a little bit. Uh, my dad did uh, his PhD in, in Berlin actually. Okay. Yeah. That's a really interesting fusion. That I think this is probably with, like talking about the diversity that we're getting in the startup ecosystems. People coming from all sorts of different backgrounds to end up or descend upon London with interesting stories such as your own. Um, how intimidating was it coming to London? It wasn't really. I mean, I guess because I'm quite an international person, mm. and um, I've when I moved to London, I actually counted the cities I've lived in, and London is the eleventh city I've lived in. Oh, wow. So I'm pretty efficient in moving around. I have and just like networking in networking quickly. in even just like you know logistically, I have 
you know, the same IKEA boxes that you put into like the IKEA <laughs> shelves. And then in every country I live, I would buy the same shelf. Mm-hmm. I would just put the box back in, you mm-hmm. know, and when I leave the flat, I would just sell off the shelf or just leave it there or whatever. I mean, I have basically my life kind of like, you know, uh, packed up that I can move pretty much any time. Um, Did, well, didn't I read that your <laughs> early entrepreneurial endeavors involved selling stuff on eBay? Was that, is that correct? So that was, yeah, um, that was back in 1999, which probably gives away my age. But <laughs> I discovered eBay in 1999 in Germany. Um, and the background to this was actually, you know, I mean, we were immigrants, right, in Germany. So my parents didn't have much money at all. Uh, my dad had a scholarship to do his PhD, but because of work permit sort of things, they were not allowed um, really to work. Now, obviously, they work in the black market, but hey, you know, mm. <laughs> that's what immigrants do. <laughs> so, um, um, so we never really had much money. So, you know, as a result, I never got any pocket money from my parents, um, which was very different because every other German child would. Right. And they would get rewarded for, you know, good grades and or just, I don't know, helping out in the household and, you know, like the normal things. Right. And I never had that. Um, And I think for me, it's like as I was growing up as a teenager, I just kind of like didn't want to wear the stuff that my mom was buying kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, I want to do my own things and buy my own stuff. And I couldn't because I had no money. (laughs) Um, So I said, okay, I need to like make money somehow. Uh, started out tutoring in high school first and then um, I signed up to this like internet sort of like course you know it was like in the 90s and we were discovering the internet Mm. Um, so then in like school I discovered eBay and I was like oh I can sell stuff online (laughs) and and that was really successful actually Um, so I was in a phase where you know I'm not sure if you guys know or remember but Pokemon and Sailor Moon like the first wave of all of these animes mm. and uh, we had these trading cards where I would kind of buy them super cheap in China. I would go back about every two or three years in the summer holidays back to China and the unit economics, I mean, as we'd call it today, was amazing because it was like a super flat card. Yeah. They would mm. take up nothing. Yeah. The postage was the cheapest because you just put it into like a normal envelope, right? That's cheapest postage. And um, and I had like special ones because they were from China and they had like glitter on them and mm. and you know were and they nobody still Eng- else English language ones though. Um, they yes they had they had okay. English stuff on 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 the back of it basically. Um, and so yes. the, po- the Pokemon names were the anglicized ones, yeah. not the original. Was it Chinese or Japanese? It's Japanese. Japanese yeah, 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 yeah. But they were English okay. and maybe they were part Japanese. I don't remember mm-hmm. quite. Um, anyway, so I had like special ones and I would sell them on eBay. The supply at the time was quite limited, so mm. it was a, quite like a standout. Ah. And um, yeah, so I would buy them for like maybe, I mean now like two pence or something like that, and I would sell them for like four or five pounds. Wow. Wow. So wow. I've never made that much margin again in my <laughs> life. I was like, I wish I could go back. I was like, damn it. And I was like, oh, my stock was limited, unfortunately, because, yeah. you know, I only bought that much. I mean, that, that is better than printing money. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> Why? So you, you, you can't have grown out of that. Nobody grows out of that kind of opportunity. Did you just... Um, I just literally was, I just wanted to make some money to pay for my driving license, buy some clothes, be able to go to the seminar with my friends, you know, it was really that. I didn't realize at the time that that, that was being entrepreneurial mm. and spotting like an opportunity in the market. And mm. I mean, if you, in hindsight, you look at, you know, there's limited supply, there was like a lot of like, you know, sort of things that were happening, obviously, you know, around like 2000. Uh, I just had no idea because I was like 16, 
kind of thing. Just you some, know, just want some cash. I just want some cash. Yeah. You know, I just want to go to H and M. Yeah, but sometimes the label entrepreneur makes people a bit self-conscious. I think it just overlooks the simplicity of maybe just buy something cheap and sell it for more, um, which clearly you did. Uh, and then and then you you went off to what school and university and and. So yeah, so then you know I went to business school, right? And then I guess like I, I'd stopped everything. Um, so I went to business school in two thousand three, and um, graduated in two thousand five with a master's. And uh, in between that, I think that's kind of like where you know Facebook started, Twitter started maybe a little bit, but Google AdWords, and I didn't do any of that. I you know because I was focusing on school as my parents wanted me to do. Mm. So it was I guess I jumped off the bandwagon of that sort of entrepreneurial. Um, sort of activities uh, online um, and I just focused on you know proper work right mm. um, yeah so in hindsight I guess I probably should have continued but oh well and, and that was pressure from your parents I think it's just kind of like what people tell you to do right and I think um, a lot of you know now I, I meet like a lot of other women and I kind of tell them look you know I broke away from the expectations of society and parents and whoever else right because you know when you go into business school it's very streamlined as well everybody's mm-hmm. like looking to do the same things working in consulting or investment banking right and you know i mean the whole thing was kind of like laid out for you which yeah. was i guess easy to follow right and you'd be like okay this is the next challenge or this is like the next hurdle i have to do this this and this and take all of these boxes to be able to you know get a good job afterwards because i think at the time um, entrepreneurship was not very um, cool mm. like it is now it was almost at least in my year if you're not able to get a good job then you would start your own business it's kind of like if you but nobody would hire you you would start your own business you're mm. kind of like the bottom kind of like you know barrel of, of students basically right um, which is really a bad thing to say but it was kind of like perceived to be that way yeah. you know I guess what I'm, I'm driving at is that even when I was at university so that was in I left in 2014. Mm. Like all the like the careers cir- things circulating were management consulting, yeah. investment banking. It's still banking. the same, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I just wondered if there was added added pressure on you because you know there's this. I don't know whether it's it's true or not, but there seems to be this cultural perception that Chinese parents are very pushy to you know getting their children onto certain career paths. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I mean, I guess you know it's not like my parents I think I grew up like this so I knew you know I didn't have to ask them it's like oh what do you guys want from me I mean I knew right yeah so and if you look at my CV and the, the type of companies I would intern for it was like the biggest companies in in Germany right I mean I've done internship with you know Siemens T-Mobile BMW um, you know P&G Deutsche Bank like you know all the big companies and all the industries that's why I would intern for because I wouldn't consider smaller companies or even startups I mean come on you know <laughs> but, but even I think Germany is up until recently played into that as well so I don't mm-hmm. think it's sort of frying pan or fire for me from an entrepreneurial perspective in that yeah I think they make it expensive to, for people to start companies etc etc um, but then so when you arrived in London were you were you clear how or where you want to be involved in the startup ecosystem or did you just want to network and, and figure it out on the yeah, fly? Yeah, no, it was more the second one. So, because um, I didn't know anyone when I came here. Um, luckily, I had uh, a job or I had a gig. Um, so I was a freelance consultant and I was working with Selfridges. So I guess I was lucky enough to, you know, sort of land that gig and uh, like I was working with them on their branding strategy for the Chinese market. Because mm-hmm. um, obviously there's a, a ton of Chinese people coming to London and you know, spending a lot of money shopping. How, 
how genuine I mean, Pokemon cards. <laughs> <laughs> how genuine is that perception? Because um, I feel it's ferried around a lot that there's this amazing dearth of Chinese consumers who want to come to the UK and spend lots. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a good soundbite, but from your pers perspective, what, what's the reality of that, of, of how no, opportune? It's no, it's true. Okay. I mean, like the amount of tourism is, is growing. Um, the Like the average spend is very high. I mean, when I came, um, if I remember the numbers correctly, is I came in 2015, sorry, 14, March 2014. And um, the previous year in 2013, I think Chinese consumers spent uh, like 300 million pounds in, you know, worth of goods mm. in the country. Um, so that's a lot, right? <laughs> and, and it adds to, you know, obviously British um, GDP and stuff like that. What's, what's the attraction to specifically spending money within UK retail stores? Let's say when we've got it's generic. A it's a lot cheaper than in China. You have in China, you have up to. 45 50% luxury tax on certain goods and on luxury goods right so if you buy you know your Rolex or your Burberry bag or whatever it would be literally twice as much if you would buy it in China and then also you would have more variety of goods in in the UK um, limited editions like stuff that nobody else had I mean they obviously buy it for prestige so mm. you want to have stuff that nobody else has right and then if you can get it even more cheaper great um, I mean oftentimes they come with shopping lists from you know everybody else to kind of buy things you know that's why like they bulk buy because it's one person traveling and then they, she would just or he or she would bring back 10 bags for everyone else uh. right so it's kind of like a bit of a bundled um, consumption power in that sense and, and that overtakes homegrown luxury brands as in uh, so within China, if there's but what's the consumption of of Chinese made luxury brands or brand identity? I mean, now I don't know because I think um, I think it's been changing. I think the homegrown luxury market has been growing, but at the time it was just not. I mean, you don't really look at Chinese luxury brands, right? I mean, c can you think of one? Like I can't. <laughs> you know, my my knowledge is not quite what it could be. <laughs> <laughs> I think people are still you know aspire to. British brands, French brands, you know, um, Italian brands, obviously, mm. um, in luxury, um, in the luxury market, yeah. And so your role with Selfridges was that informing them on on how they they can market, they all connect to them, or literally yeah, get them installed. Un understand um, Chinese consumers better, um, what they're looking for, why they're traveling. I mean, what like their behavior really, right? For example, that one person buys for like the whole lot back home. And it's not like one person buying like 10 bags because she wants to, you know, um, or when they travel. I mean, we have different national holidays. Um, yeah. And there was quite a lot of knowledge that, you know, even people in South just didn't have. For mm. example, that Chinese people don't celebrate Christmas. So don't expect anyone on your fourth floor for Christmas. You know, nobody cares. You don't celebrate Christmas? No, we don't celebrate Christmas. What do people do on Christmas Day? Mm, well, now they celebrate because it's kind of like a thing, like, you know, but not really. It's just like fake. It's just it's just basically copying the U.S. That's what it is. Okay. Yeah. They don't really do anything. I mean, you know, you can see like Christmas trees and Santa Claus, but it's really not. It means nothing. It's like it's a day out with friends. But now hopefully retailers have managed to convince them that it should be... A, a day of hype and gifts. I don't know if hopefully is the right word. <laughs> well, well retail, <laughs> retailers have got Black Friday and now they have well, Christmas the and they have January so. sales. Yes, yeah. for the retailers. Yeah. Um, and and I read then that you you're doing that as a one man band. Um, and one woman band. Sorry, one one, one woman band. Quite right. Um, and then you 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 saw scalability issues with it in terms of your yeah. time and how you were gonna gonna put that to use. Exactly, and. Uh, to be honest, it was also it just got a bit boring, 
I mean, if you do the same thing after a year um, and you talk about the same things to different brands, I mean, I was working with Selfridges, I was also working with Fort Mill Mason, mm. and I was kind of pitching to a few other brands on Bond Street. Um, but I could just like project that, you know, the work would literally be the same um, for every brand, really. And I was like, okay, that's not really what I want to do. I wanted to build something that can exist without me, that, you know, is more scalable, it's more impactful. Because um, also, if you're a consultant, you know, you can share your best knowledge and your best recommendation, but if it gets implemented, it's not really in your control, right? That's like the typical quandrum with um, with consultancy. So yeah, so basically at the time when, I guess, when I moved to London, I didn't know anyone, and I put myself out there, I wanted to network, I went to a lot of events, you know, in Mayfair, Soho, Shoreditch, like everywhere. And I discovered that the whole, you know, sort of scene was very male dominated. And it just like stroked me because I didn't know anyone. And, and you know, I was kind of like, okay, well, I just keep on meeting guys and that's that's fine. I mean, I can make friends with guys. I have guy friends, that's, that's okay. But I rarely would meet any like female that I kind of like vibe with. Mm. And I was just like, where are all the women? Like, why are the women not here? Uh, or there are less women here. Uh, and then I'll say, okay, well, let me create my own meetup group then and try to find some women basically to hang out with. Um, so I started the meetup group uh, pretty much when I moved over and like in the first couple of months kind of thing. And how, did, how did you actually start that? I was just logged on a meetup.com okay, and well, created meetup. a group. Yeah. And at the time, actually, I think meetup changed uh, now, but at the time, you know, I think they had like a special deal for people creating groups and now it got quite quite expensive, but I was, you had to have to pay to run a group actually, but at the time it wasn't that much. It was maybe like 30 pounds for six months or something like okay, that. Yeah. Uh, now it's kind of like 30 pounds per month. I'm like, God. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time it was like 30 pounds for six months. I was like, okay, let's create this entrepreneurial women, you know, sort of group. And, um, and then on Meetup, you can actually see who is part of which groups. So all the groups are open and all the messaging system was open as well. So I would just kind of like follow or join other entrepreneurial groups. And I would literally go through their members list and whoever looks female, I would send her a message right. basically. Mm, yeah. That's a good strategy. <laughs> so I was like growth hacking my way through that. <laughs> and I was like, I want to be more people. Do you want to join my group? Um, and then I would just organize, you know, drinks in a bar somewhere in Soho or, you know, somewhere else um, just to meet up, right? And that group grew to over a thousand people in the first nine months. Wow. Uh, and I was like a lot of invitation. I had about a 25% conversion rate of like cold messaging mm -hmm. people. Um, so I thought it was not bad. Mm. And but it also showed me that there's nominally speaking, you know, there's a lot of women that are entrepreneurial, are interested in entrepreneurship, but they, they just don't really hang out in the other events that I happen to go to. And and so I kind of like thought that there was an opportunity to create our, our own space. Right. Um, and I became that, you know, organizer who that then started bringing people together. Um, yeah. So when I sort of like, you know, got bored with the consulting work, I was like, well, maybe there's something around, you know, this topic, because there are quite a lot of people. Uh, when we meet up, we would talk about, you know, issues and challenges in business um, and have a drink. Right. But then you would listen to them saying, actually, you know, it is hard and people struggle with the whole thing. Um, so that's when I thought like, you know what, I'm, you know, a, I guess, alpha user or like, I'm like the prototype of, of women that, you know, sort of has certain issues and, and there's actually a lot of more women that have similar issues. Um, and if I focus on that sort of customer, maybe I can design products and services to, to help her. Um, nobody else was doing it. 
So I felt it was quite unique mm -hmm. at the time. That was um, in 2000, early 2015. And then I decided to stop the consulting work, not renew my contracts and um, focus full time on Blooming Founders in August 2015. And, and are there issues that are specific to women entrepreneurs or is it just that they have the, they're the same issues that any entrepreneur faces, but women just, you felt that they just needed like a space specific to them? I think both. So I think there are issues that are specific to female founders and I think that like the ecosystem doesn't serve them in, in certain ways. A lot of women are solo founders when they're starting out. So that makes things more difficult, right? Then there's a lot of knowledge that they're missing about entrepreneurship. They typically don't know anybody else who is also an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I feel that from the guys I've met, you know, they typically have a mate that's also kind of like, you know, doing something on the side or running a business or mm -hmm. some, yeah. some sort of things. I also feel that women tend to, and that's more specific to like, I guess the, the female gender, when we don't know anything, we like to research. Like the first point of call is to Google it. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like for a lot of my guy friends, like the first point of call is to call someone, mm -hmm. right? Just like pick up the phone, like, hey mate, like, you know, I have this thing, do you want to grab a beer? Let's talk about it or something like that, yeah. right? Men are much more like likely to reach out to, for help, um, even at super early stages. And women have this thing like where, they don't want to be perceived as like, I don't know anything and I want to be better prepared. I want to know more. So then I gain confidence from from that. Mm -hmm. um, so what a lot of people, you know, sort of refer to lack of confidence, I actually think it's lack of knowledge. Um, yeah. Interesting. So, or is it that I think the lack of knowledge probably extends to almost everyone. Yeah. But, but, but perhaps um, men generally feel more Okay. Uh, comfortable with just <laughs> yeah. winging okay. it. Okay, with yeah. not knowing yeah, exactly. and still doing it. It's okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you, you right. do. I do see that, like, pretty much, yeah. But it's I, a vicious trade-off between knowledge and and then you can't know, as we said before the interview, you can't know all the factors that are going to play out for your startup. So mm -hmm. you could ingest all the startup, like, knowledge in the universe. And if you're doing something genuinely new, mm -hmm. then you shouldn't have encountered some of the problems before because it's it's that's part of being an entrepreneur. Um and and there's also this sort of explore ex exploit trade-off where you have to get going. If you spend six months waiting on an idea because you want to perfectly research it, you're losing the opportunity to get out in the market and, and field test it as well. Um, what's the antidote to this this knowledge confidence issue? Do you think? I think on the positive end, um, you know, there are stats or, or reports that show that women are actually building more profitable, more sustainable businesses. And I think as part of, and that I do think that is a result of that, like of being yeah. really well prepared or researching a lot of things, you know, taking really calculated risks, right? I mean, I personally think that women should take more risks, but mm. <laughs> but I think, you know, I guess as a positive, you know, as an antidote is that um, uh, it was a study by BCG um, that analyzed, I think, 400 um, startups uh, founded by men and women. And women generate 20% more revenue than um, the guys, like the, the men, male-led companies, even though they raise half amount of the money. That's that bravado thing, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah. Somebody goes in, I want my million quid to hit this exponential growth curve. And they, they state it. And you know, then some people buy into the same formula. And they go, well, I'm you know, brimming with confidence in this guy's idea. Yeah. But it's, as you said, it could be all bullshit. Um, Sounds like a, a neat hybrid of the two. A man woman team that yeah. man can may work really raise yeah. more money than they need and the women the women can make sure that it's used it all gets yeah it's sensibly used sensibly and and, well, and this is my my 
thing with the diversity and inclusion is actually what you're talking about is sitting on the side of the rational and the sane. And sometimes people are rewarded for abnormal risk taking. I mean, I would take the examples of, of fighter pilots in the Apollo program and stuff. They would take extraordinary risks and what we use them for and, and some of the people who died was we learned lessons that then help us refine the technology. But um, in these specific examples, I think there's sometimes this narrative that I think it's an old narrative that women need to be like men in business to compete with men in business. And actually what you're saying is testament to the point of create your own identity. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll it'll do, do you well. Yeah, exactly. I think the point of creating Blooming Founders is, is kind of like, it was that feeling that, you know, there was a lot of conversation around, you know, women have to get their seat at the table. Mm. But then it always feels like you have to try to fit in, right? And that's also the environment that I come from. I mean, you know, McKinsey has a very distinctive culture, right? So when you get recruited into that, then you have to fit in, right? Because everybody is like that, and that's kind of like what people expect from you. Um, but if you don't want to fit in, right, what do you do? Mm. So I guess like the, the, the sort of underlying sort of mission of Blooming Founders is actually to encourage people to create their own tables, mm. right? And then that's beautiful because in entrepreneurship, we can make things work, right? Um, as long as, you know, like there's a, you know, customer demand, there's a market for it, like, you, like as long as you're profitable, I suppose, or, you know, on a way to, to getting there, um, you know, you can do whatever you want, basically, right? And how, how do you go about doing that for women founders and it's not exclusive it's worth saying it's not exclusively no no so all of our sort of products and services are designed for female entrepreneurs are very much i guess kind of coming back from my png days where i used to design shampoo for mm. women but mm. so i used to work on pantene but um and it's i use that exactly <laughs> right so it's the world's largest shampoo brand but 20 percent of our customers or buyers are actually men we never use any men in advertising whatsoever. It's all female. We only speak to women, but 20% of, of you know customers are, are, are men and that's completely fine. I mean, we need them or they need them. I mean, not my brand anymore, um, but it's similar to, to what I'm doing now, right? So I, I create a, you know the co-working space and events that are um, you know sort of with women in mind. But if a man wants to join, then that's not a problem because, you know, I guess- Assuming just, he adheres to some kind of I say this citing the Killing Kittens example where we had the founder of that who, mm -hmm. who's, who's great um, there has to be some rules like so the, the cross-pollination of the professional boundaries I assume has to be made pretty clear the guy's going to come into the workspace him then going to the coffee machine and hitting on women clearly would, no, be, a bit, I, would I, be a big no-no no, right <laughs> I don't think any guy would do that had joined the Blooming Founders yes it would seem know, it would seem like insane <laughs> right but like I assume that at some point yeah. there's got to be some clarity on on what their their involvement is is that stated up front or is it just a i think it's pretty obvious as you know that we are female friendly you know co-working space and a female focused one so when you are a man that wants to join then you typically join you know because you also don't really like the whole ego-driven you know sort of approach in other co-working spaces right you'd be like you know i'm not really sort of signing up to that stuff either or you appreciate the flexibility that we offer you know or you just want to like get some work done and, and that's okay you know yeah so, as people yeah. should do in work, mm. workspaces. So, is that is that a focus of yours as well of of um, allowing people who are potentially parents to have 
nursery facilities or anything like that? Or? So we tried that in our um, pilot location. Um, so we started the co-working space about 18 months ago, um, now almost 20 months ago. Um, and in the first sort of six months, we tried uh, to operate a nursery and a crash. Um, and it didn't really work because, I mean, I'm not a mom, so that's why Isla was lacking the insights. It's a typical thing of like, you think it could be a good idea because you don't really, really relate to the problem you just overlook a lot of things, right? Um, so our pilot location was based just off Old Street Roundabout, which was a really good location. Um, and, but I didn't know that, well, I guess, you know, I, I wasn't aware that Old Street doesn't have a lift. So if you don't have a lift, it's extremely difficult for people to like, move up their buggies up and down mm. the stairs, especially when Old Street becomes really busy in, you know, sort of rush hour times. Um, so that was kind of like a no-go for a lot of people. Then you have a lot of regulations around nursery and crashes. So for the first five months, um, until we got Ofsted registered, you can only have your child for up to four hours. So then, you know, if you live in, I don't know, Dulwich or Hampstead or wherever, um, you don't want to, you know, commute for 40 minutes just to kind of put your child into childcare for four hours and then you have to take it back again. Like you want to use the space whole, like for a whole day to get the productivity out, right? Mm. Because if you only have four hours, I mean, you know, it's like it's two coffees and some emails and yeah. like another meeting. That's it, mm -hmm. right? Um, so it wasn't really effective for most of the, the parents. Um, yeah, but, you know, I just like, well, you're not really working. It's not really the part that I'm super passionate about because I don't really relate to the problem. Mm. Um, I don't think I can deliver the best service in this area. And there's too much red tape around, you know, regulations and, and all that. So we decided to stop doing it because we also just didn't see much value add to the business. And sometimes, I, from my experience of some of the other operators of that is to be commercially minded about it, you want to make the nursery also facilities make money. Yeah. And then you're kind of locking people into a co-working space where they're also on-site facilities may not be the most affordable if it's gets to like a PE level of yeah. backing. Look at WeWork, for instance, if they had their own nurseries, they, they want to make margin on them. And then mm -hmm. it, it's a bit in sort of, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's, a, if it's in everybody's best interest. Um, so yeah, how, how how many people of this, obviously you've got a group of a thousand people you've networked into, how many people do you have within the, in the co-working space? So we have about 75 members at the moment, maybe getting to 80, I don't know. Need to check the numbers. <laughs> and the typical kind of companies you're you're seeing come in? It's really a mix. Um, so we have you know tech startups. We have a travel tech company in the in the space. We have uh, food businesses. So we have a um, more established business that does chocolate puddings, um, and a new business that does like plant based uh, drinks. So milk drinks, so like mm -hmm. hemp drinks. Mm -hmm. um, then we have. Um, you know, smaller agencies, um, marketing agencies, um, or research agencies. Uh, we also have um, charities that are based there. And we actually have a quite a high concentration of abortion charities because I guess of the female sort of, you know, thing, because mm. uh, obviously support women in, in um, abortion uh, situations um, or campaigning for abortion rights. And yeah, you know, a bunch of freelancers mixed into it. Um, people who left a startup, want to set up their own thing, but don't really know what yet, kind of thing. Um, yeah, so a really a mix of people. And how do you support them beyond simply the, the co-working space? So I have to say, you know, in the beginning, um, we offered mentorship, we offered like all of these things. We had loads of events going on. 
But really, um, I have to say that most of the value that people get is literally having access to a flexible, um, so flexible access. So our most popular memberships are the four days and the eight days a month uh, memberships. Mm -hmm. um, we have some full-time members, but uh, comparatively few. Um, it's basically people who can't work from home and they want to you know, work in the space, but they don't, they don't need the space full-time. Mm. So they don't see the point of paying for a full-time space either. And they just want to be part of like a nice space and just feel comfortable, be productive, and just get work done, mm -hmm. basically. And then if there's you know other friendly people around them, that's great. And then they would talk to each other. Uh, but mostly it's kind of like you know people know what they're doing, um, and and they're there to to do the things right, uh, to meet people, um, you know, have their meetings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Because we just didn't really see much of a uptake from everything else that we offered. Yeah. So then over mm. time, I was kind of like, why would we still offer that, mm. right? Uh, because you would get like the odd one and say like, oh, you know, so how do I access the mentors, you know? And I was like, but we didn't see enough traction, I suppose, around the mentoring bit that we could then optimize towards that, right? Like the mentoring requests were really random. And I was like, okay, now I have to find a mentor for you because you're like a small business, whereas this other person was more of a tech startup and you need completely different mentorships, mm -hmm. right? And this, that just became, you know, or organizationally really complicated. Yeah. And it was just literally a handful of people. Um, so we stopped it actually. Um, I mean, obviously we're still, I'm still there. I'm still, you know, there to help um but then now just ask me informally you know mm. just just you know grab me <laughs> and then be like i need, need this or i'm looking for that and what about the event stuff because you said you said you had a big one on monday yeah so that was like a big conference um and then actually in the space we still run regular events so we have a monthly um networking event called women wisdom and wine that's kind of like our antidote to the pizza and beer <laughs> networking yeah. event so we have yeah. uh wine and cheese yeah. and um so that's kind of ongoing every month on the first thursday of the month uh we do that and then we have you know sort of master classes we're actually having a podcasting master class in mid-september well you definitely don't want to look to us for any <laughs> pearls of wisdom <laughs> and um yeah so it's kind of because obviously you know it's a quite a popular medium now and people are looking to start up their own and they're like okay how do i even do that um and we have um, sort of panel discussions. Um, there we have a partnership with the Curtain Hotel, which is because mm. we're based on Curtain Road. They're literally based like you know two minutes below the road, uh, like on the road, and they have larger, larger spaces. So our space, because our workspace is kind of separated across two units, um, which is great for like you know sort of working because you can like you know go into different work environments. But it's not, I guess, I suppose that great for bigger events. Mm. Um, so we have a partnership with the Curtain um, Hotel to, to do bigger events there. Um, yeah, but then on Monday we had um, a conference and we only do two conferences a year. And this one was on fundraising because um, that's kind of content-wise where I'm looking to focus on right. uh, moving forward mm. um, with the view to also build kind of like an incubator type of thing for female founders in the future. Um, but we had 250 women attending throughout the whole day. We had investor roundtables in the morning and the evenings where you, know, you can get to meet investors in a small environment and just kind of, you know, build rapport, you know, see whether there could be a fit between your startup and the fund and also tap into their network. Um, so we had prepared sort of like, you know, prompting questions. And one of them was, if my startup is not a good, good fit for you, 
who else would you recommend me to speak to? Right. Mm. It's really sort of like getting female founders plugged into that sort of network. And then we had content in the afternoon where we talked about different ways of fundraising, um, you know, not just VC, but also angel investment, corporate funds, um, family offices, how to build an advisory board, because um, investors are looking for that most of the time, and women rarely have it. Mm. Um, you know, I don't even have one. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, things that, that um, you know, you should work on when you sort of are getting investment ready. Mm. Right? On the advisory board mm. front, do you, do you suggest that um, women, female founders look for female advisors or is it just you want an advisor that's you know, the best possible fit for your company? I think both. I mean, ideally you can find a woman who's the best possible fit like for the topic and your industry. Yeah. Because I always think that, you know, there's more camaraderie, you know, sort of with the same gender basically, right? Mm. If she's also supporting you, like, you know, she can relate to, to other things. Right? Let's assume that you are both moms, for example, yeah. right? Then, you know, that's something that your advisory board, you know, I mean, I would, I guess the recommendation is to have diversity in everything, right? Mm -hmm. You have, you can obviously have, you know, great men on your advisory board, but then on some things, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, personal things or maybe leadership topics mm -hmm. where I see a lot of women, you know, they feel a lot more comfortable talking to another woman that is you know quite f far advanced in her career right i mean i think a, a typical issue for a lot of female tech founders is that when they actually are one of the few women in in their own company mm. right because everybody else is a guy and then you know when things happen she is the ceo she still has to portray the image of a leader and a ceo whereas really she just wants to like you know <laughs> i don't know cry or something you mm. know because she just hit the fan yeah. and she doesn't she has no one to talk to right um in that situation you know she typically sort of calls up another female founder who is you know in a similar situation and that what as in like you know is in tech industry has to deal with a lot of developers or whatever like you know people um, so it really helps if you have those people that can understand you on both levels, both professional and personal a little bit. So Ollie touched on the question earlier of female, very female specific issues that are faced currently for entrepreneurs. Yeah, what are the, the negative ones very specific to, to women other than the confidence issues that you are seeing arise? Yeah, I think the confidence issues I see on, um, I think so I would say knowledge issues, not knowledge, confidence, sorry. because I think that when we can upskill more female founders, then we can help solve the confidence issue. Uh, on the other side, obviously, there's the funding gap. Um, I mean, only 1% of UK venture capital went into all female founding teams, uh, whereas 90%, almost 90% of venture capital went into all male founding teams. Mm. And then you have 10%, like 9 to 10% in between, that's kind of like mixed gender teams. Um, so that's obviously a big hurdle because if you're not getting the cash to scale your product, then you will never, we will never see the innovations that could exist that sort of sprung out of women's minds, mm -hmm. right? And I think in a lot of industries, especially health or education um, and other, you know, sort of, I mean, you know, lifestyle, consumer goods or whatever, um, where the majority of customers are actually female, I think there's a huge innovation gap, right? Because yeah. if 80% of, I don't know, education purchases, I don't know, that's made up, but I guess roughly it's probably true. But if 80% of education purchases are made by women, but the products that are sort of, you know, brought up to the market as innovative products are created by guys, then it's kind of, there's a bit of a gap, right? It doesn't really make sense. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, so I think there's a huge opportunity to create just better products for the world if there are more um, women innovating those things. But do, you think, do you really think it's fair to say that a man can't design a product for a woman or a woman can't design a product for a man? It's like there are, you know, children's authors or adult, adult, adult mm-hmm. children's authors who write books for, for children. Mm-hmm. It seems... And I get what you're saying. I'm not. I'm not completely challenging it. It just seems that not entirely fair to say that you need male innovators to create male products for male customers. I think it comes back to consumer insight, right? I mean, if you are a man that knows a lot about, you know, um, like female health, for example, because you are a trained doctor, then mm-hmm. great. You know, mm-hmm. like you are the expert, and you probably have. You are in touch with a lot of you know, sort of women that have the problem that you're looking to solve right yeah i think it's just you know i think when people like i'm speaking sort of top line right for the whole industry when people come into the industry and or or are in the industry they they want to innovate they they see the challenges that they experience that's true and i think it's just like proportionately you know there's still a lot i mean it's one percent of vc capital right so it's kind of it's quite obvious that there's a huge imbalance in what type of innovation got funded and i'm not saying that you know um men should only innovate for men and women should only innovate for women but there should be definitely more innovation led by women because at the moment it's just completely underfunded yeah and i think there's a lot of you know business opportunity that is going to waste because you just never know what you know a specific female team could have created yeah that might be a better product mm. right it's just also you know it's a difficult problem to find the solution to because we we ran the numbers on so on our uk network at angel mm-hmm. investment network we have about twenty thousand registered investors and less than 10% of them are women. Mm-hmm. And we think that's like pretty reflective of the, the industry generally. Um, and it's like, you'd, you'd imagine that female investors are more likely to invest into female-led uh, ventures, mm-hmm. but because there's a much smaller number of them and therefore fewer uh, female business role models, that then it's harder to get the, the groundswell of of female entrepreneurs coming through mm-hmm. but then it's where, where do you start it because if those female investors became female investors because they were successful in the, in their industry um so what i was trying to say is it, if, if you want there to be more female investors the chances are you want there to be more female entrepreneurs but in order for there to be more female well, entrepreneurs, a marketplace problem yeah, yeah exactly yeah. it's the chicken and egg scenario yeah. and it's how, how do you go about well you, you see the ecosystem i assume with yeah. an environment environment that's fertile for for ripe ideas right and then you can invite the female investors to demo days and they can choose or not but choose. it's a it's a, it's a slow chain it's it will take time yeah. i think that's it i think the awareness has come and we all realize it needs to happen i think that the change has just got to be something that's absorbed it's much like the issues we have around sustainability it's going to take us time to absorb the problems the planet facing internalize them and turn them into good ideas um are you seeing the the kinds of businesses being pitched into you from female founders changing over time isn't like industry-wise or vertical-wise? Yeah, so I'd say, yeah, sometimes when I review pitch decks, there's, there's times I can't relate to the problem. I, I, yeah. I just don't know it as a consumer proposition. Um, th- I think there was one called Owl or something. It was uh, delivery of, of you know, female products on mm-hmm. your monthly cycle. And I, I just don't know the issue there. And I can look at the unit economics. But we've seen more recently deep tech coming from female founders and... All sorts, and I don't know if that was always there, or we're just seeing more of it now. Um, but are you seeing the kinds of businesses come in be more generalist, or are they still sort of female leading leaning? As I suppose vertical-wise, I do see most women innovating in like the consumer space, and 
you know, I guess it's a typical verticals, right? Consumer, like general lifestyle, beauty, um, fashion, retail, um, health, um, education. There is more deep tech um, sort of coming, but I guess proportionately still, you know, fairly small. Um, but, but do you think that's a problem? Do you think it, because if women tend to favor those that you just mentioned and not favor tech so much, is that a problem? Is that because the like the tech industry is, is actively putting off women or is it because like on the bell curve, women tend to towards other I think, areas I of think interest? people, like entrepreneurs want to solve problems that they can relate to, right? Mm. Um, I mean, I created Blooming Founders because I saw different things that I didn't have when I started out. So I felt passionate about, you know, solving those problems. And, uh, and when I say sort of lifestyle and all that, it's not like a lifestyle business. It's still mm. like a tech platform, right? It could be retail tech or it could be whatever sort of, you know, sort of thing. Um, uh, social networks or whatever, right? I mean, um, and they get huge lots of funding. I mean, and I mean, the last two female sort of led unicorns were actually both product based, right? Like Glossier and Rent, um, not Rent the Runway, um, Rent, 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 Rent the Runway is a marketplace. Um, the other one was Away, right? It's luggage, mm -hmm. right? And uh, somehow, you know, they kind of created those crazy valuations for themselves, which is good for them. Um, um, yeah, so I think that I think every entrepreneur should focus on, you know, the problems that they can relate to and, and are sort of best positioned to solve. Um, there is probably an issue with, you know, STEM education and all that. That's kind of then becomes a derivative of, you know, less women in, in deep tech. But I think there's such a push right now. There's so many grants, Innovate UK and all that, where, you know, they have specific grants for women innovators in, in deep tech and, and all that, that, you know, I think there is a push and mm. we will see sort of more um, women innovating. I mean, I had a few, I had like some astronomic, astronomical AI and I was like, what is that? <laughs> I was like, it actually is AI for space tech. Okay, mm. all right, <laughs> astronomical AI, mm. great. Um, you know, like you start to see these things, right? Um, but of course, it's a numbers game. And I think to your point with female angel investors, again, I think it's a complete knowledge thing because female angel investors, or if you're, I guess, um, a woman who's working in the city, who's making, you know, good living, you don't actually don't like, you don't have friends, girlfriends that are also angel investors, right? It's it's not a thing, yeah. mm. right? And you don't know what it means to be an angel investor. You know, it's capital at risk. Okay, fine. Mm. But, you know, and um, I think there's a lot of, also a lot of education and knowledge uh, sort of transfer needed on that side. But as you said, it's going to be a slow sort of, you know, sort of burn and, and um, while I think it's in, it's it's needed to to do that as well, I think it's more effective to actually sort of help female founders to build companies that are worth funding because there is enough money out there. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's yeah. loads Agreed. of money out there, and if you can just get the right people, right, and not every product proposition. I mean, I have, you know everybody who's innovating in B two B, for example, like you don't have to relate. I mean, you know, there's enough people who can relate to that problem, right? Mm -hmm. Um, or a problem. So I'm trying to help female founders funded from whoever, yep. <laughs> like any avenue is cool, like angel, family office, corporate venture funds, early stage VC, like whoever wants to join and gets it, it's cool because we just have to create more, yeah. um, you know, examples and funding uh, sort of events yep. that then would attract more people. Do we need to do an education piece to up the risk appetite of female investors? Because 
to your point earlier about knowledge, there is a degree of embarrassment or potential shame of backing a company that fails. Whether it's got a good purpose or not, it's unclear. Mm. But um, I, I think I think it does hurt, irrespective of people knowing the risks. Mm. And I don't know how we overcome the issue of the fact that failure rates are still high. And the more people enter into the entrepreneurship um, environment, the more the failure rates will continue to be high. That's just the way it's going to be. So mm. what do you think the 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 way that we can convince female investors to participate, but also to say, look, yeah. If you don't get it right because you did you did all the due diligence you could do, but sometimes these things just go AWOL, mm-hmm. how, how do we communicate that effectively, do you think? I think maybe through building a community or, or something, you know, sort of, um, I mean, it's all a narrative, right? And mm. I think that's like the difference between the US and the UK, where in the US it's perfectly fine to fail as a founder and an investor, right? Yeah. Or, I mean, I mean, the amount of people who bragged about how they passed on Uber, I was like, oh my God, people, can you stop it, please, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's okay, you know? You got to look at Uber early, early stage, great, and you pass on it, well, tough luck. Um, it's it's a very different culture, and I think it's just like, it's just, I mean, investor networks are really small networks, right? It's kind of like the narrative that people tell each other, and and that goes into your brain, and hopefully you will start to believe in it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, you know, I think with any investor, if you look, probably just put in the numbers, right? I mean, you have EIS, SEIS, yeah. like you invest so much, you're saving that much in tax, even if you lose it, like, you know, imagine, you know, it's almost like the equivalent equivalent maybe of like a holiday trip you know Mm. it's like hey but at least you have the upside of potential you know i mean a helping a founder and b Mm. um you know winning big time on your um investment right um so it's kind of like maybe normalizing that for her that the loss just doesn't feel like you know i mean i mean women spend a lot of money on other things yeah where they don't get any return right and the value is diminishing like from the moment she bought the thing right and and that's okay too and um and i feel like actually like the mindset is is probably also to help women shift from being that more I, I, what i want to say is like i f- i think women are more likely to donate money than to invest the money that i've heard from several people that you know if you actually you know are very wealthy or you've inherited a lot of wealth then you'd rather donate twenty thousand pounds than invest twenty thousand pounds. Oh. And I'm like, why? You know, but it's in their minds that's just kind of like what people do, right? Again, because they don't have the support network or community or girlfriends that are being like, you know what, instead of donating twenty thousand pounds, you can become an angel investor and you can help this business and mm. I mean you're prepared to lose it anyway, right? Because you're donate donating it. Mm-hmm. There's almost a coupling of, of- probably where social impact or impact investing is going to hopefully close that loop of where yeah, your money one. can be applied to something exactly. that is good and is exactly. that is an interesting one. yeah the narrative's changing isn't it we, yeah commercial That's, traction and uh, sort of a purpose-led well that was what i was going to lend into to the whole discussion piece is that this lens that's being created that at the moment impact is at the forefront of, of mm-hmm. a lot of people's mind and consequently we are seeing a rise in the number of businesses i'm seeing that are trying to tackle those issues. So I think that where we frame the, the the end point, the goals, is where we will suddenly see innovation come through and quite quickly as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's your take on this? With the, the businesses that are being made by female entrepreneurs, let's say they are um, focusing on consumer consumption in the, in the female space, and now we have this move against some consumptive habits. Mm-hmm. What do you think will happen there? Or yeah, what do you think will happen there? 
It's an interesting question. I think, I mean, a lot of the, the new consumer goods that I see that women are creating are very sustainable, right? Okay. They're all like vegan, organic, like everything is, you know, super good. Um, so yeah, and I think a lot of like, you know, sort of even like on the consumer side, it's about like reducing the consumption, but maybe also more sharing, mm-hmm. right? Um, circular economy and all that. Um, and I think there there are tackling, you know, sort of um, in skincare, for example, it's like less toxins, better ingredients and everything, right? Um, yeah, there's a lot of like health and well-being. Because um, I think on one side, there's a sort of marketing funnel that's designed to maybe play on people's fears and insecurities mm-hmm. to make them buy products to mm-hmm. to improve their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and those two things seem odd, odd, odds with each other. One's sort of breaking you down, the other one's building you up, but ultimately it's all to get you to consume more mm-hmm. of their mm-hmm. their product. I'm just trying to work out where I guess the, the happy medium is, but maybe what you're saying about the supply chain being addressed is... I think, I mean, I'm used to work for P&G, right? I mean, yeah. like those products are... Yeah, I mean, they're probably not like the best products for the environment, right? And I think like the whole economy has moved from this like, you know, manufacturing world just to a society that is much more aware of sustainability and conscious consumption. Mm. And I think that the big companies like P&G and L'Oreal and and all of these people, they're just too big to like move quick enough, right, to kind of sort of, uh, you know, sort of um, jump on the consumer trends, right? Because the consumer is... Really, I mean, Gen Z is super hypercritical about what's in the product and stuff like that, right? Um, and and I think there is an opportunity for you know entrepreneurs to create products that are really designed for specific needs of a niche um, community or a group, and potentially sell it on later on to like a larger corporate, right? I mean, that's you know how the whole cycle works, and then become angel investors, mm-hmm. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. you know. And I guess, of course, I mean, we're all, you know, in business and nothing, you know, it's not like... That's the complexity, right? It's, it's like, not... we do need revenues to grow, and for <laughs> revenues to grow, if it's selling more plastic bottles of something, yeah, um, it's at odds with you then wanting a, a paper straw. You're not, do- you're not doing enough because it's like an offset process, yeah. which I always think is, is difficult. Can you tell us about Dear Female Founder? Yes. Dear Female Founder, yeah. yeah. Um, my book <laughs> that I published um, end of 2016. It was the first ever product I've launched. So we've done events, you know, like we started uh, when we started mid-2015. We've been just doing events for a year. So it's part of the Blooming Founders business model. Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. It's kind of published by Blooming Founders Publishing. Got it. Hmm. I basically created an email address and then I had a new entity in the business. <laughs> 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 just in case I want to publish more books yeah. down the line, you know, you never know. Yeah. You know, just yeah. set up for scalability. Yeah, yeah nice. <laughs> um, so that's my publishing entity uh, that has published one book so far but um it was at the time so i did not monetize blooming founders in the first year so between august 2000 literally actually august 2015 and august 2016 didn't make a single pound in revenue um it was all about building a brand building community but then i was working on this book and that was like the first product i launched um to sell as a product and um yeah and you know the idea is came out of a event where we talked about role models and where we talked about there's too few female role models in the entrepreneurship space. All the articles were about Elon Musk at the time, you know, mm-hmm. Mark Zuckerberg and all of these people, uh, you know, great, but completely unrelatable unrela- re- to, to us. And 
I thought that, hold on, I invite a lot of great female speakers to my events. I'm not sure that they know a lot of other great women, right? Why don't I sort of create like a piece of content that is more original, also more um, genuine, because one of the other complaints or sort of the sort of feedback was that typically, you know, the panels you would see at these big tech conferences come across very inauthentic because everybody's just like sitting there and telling each other how great they are. Mm. Um, and you'd be like, okay, great, you've just raised 30 million, but you know, mm. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't easy and you're not really talking about it, right? Um, everybody says it was challenging, but what does it mean, you know? Um, so I felt there was an opportunity to create more original content, more genuine from like the bottom of your heart as an entrepreneur and from a female perspective. So I've reached out to a few female speakers that sort of well, women that I knew and I've created like an application, no, nomination pr process um, for other people to recommend amazing women because I didn't know that many at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then you know, I just collected, you know, sort of submissions. I had calls with them. At some point, I really wanted to make it global as well, just to also say that it's not you don't have to be based in London or New York or Silicon Valley to start, you know, something big. You can also be based in, you know, Venezuela or New Zealand. Um, and yeah, so pushed it out there and then I curated 66 letters that were submitted to me, edited them and then put them together into this book. Hmm. Yeah. That's so cool. the book is called Dear Female Founder because every chapter starts with Dear Female Founder because it's a letter that mm. this person has written to, you know, a future female founder or anyone that uh, wants to read advice from female entrepreneurs. It's obviously, you know, available on Amazon and Kindle and everybody can buy it, including men. <laughs> and a lot of men actually have bought it, yeah. actually. They bought it for their girlfriends and then they started reading themselves. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you could do a podcast series based on it. I could. I'm actually looking into it. Um, I'm actually so... Um, <laughs> for the future, right? Um, yeah. So for 2020, my big project is actually to get a corporate sponsor to, uh, to back us on creating more original content. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm actually thinking about the podcast. I'm thinking about the video sort of academy. It. It's great. I mean, and yeah. to your point, there are these stories that need to be pulled out from people other than positive LinkedIn posts celebrating achievement. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it, it, it's like it, there's either a pod a post sort of celebrating achievement or there's one that's like very, very vulnerable and possibly very honest. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if LinkedIn's the most forgiving platform for that. I mean, sometimes they kind of get adulation, but, but you need human on human. Um, honesty and vulnerability. Yeah. I don't think sharing into the social ether and hoping that you get 100 likes in response to you saying, yeah. I've had mental health issues, for instance, is necessarily the best way to address that. And I think yeah. the the nature of those letters, um, did you take anything out of that experience that you hadn't expected um, to? Yeah, I felt that it's kind of like, it was quite overwhelming to, to sort of, um, or, you know, positive to see that almost every woman that I approached was really positive towards the idea. Mm. Um, which also meant that so many women want to, sh to give back and share, but they also are never given the opportunity. I mean, you know, mind you, that was 2015, before the whole female empowerment sort of movement really kicked off, right? Like before Me Too and, and, and Nasty Women and all that. Um, and I just kind of realized that, you know, there's amazing women out there, but nobody ever asked them to share their stories mm. or ask for their, their advice. Um, so everybody was super keen, actually, uh, which was great for me. Um, and in terms of advice, um, I also then realized that how little um, the advice was actually very gendered. Um, there was a bit like, you know, family and, and all that, but most of it was just kind of like entrepreneur advice, you mm. know, and um, everybody can benefit from it, right? Because uh, you realize that they see themselves as founders and not as 
female founders, yeah. first and foremost, yeah. Yeah. right? Even though they are totally on board to support the cause and whatever, but you know, their self-identity was a founder. Yeah, well, I tend to think if a challenge is so much bigger than us that we dissolve in the presence of it, you know, if, if yeah, they are founders tackling a challenge and they don't have time necessarily on their day-to-day basis to consider uh, their position. And it's probably nice for them to be asked on that level. Yeah, although we've had a bit of a weird experience with that, I actually looked through in preparation for this, mm. everyone we've invited to be on the podcast, and it's it's pretty much 50-50, male and female. And yet, if you look at our published record, it's mostly men. We've had some like really great female founders on, but it is mostly male, and that's because uh, female founders, or the, at least from the ones we've asked, have said no more often than the male counterpart. Okay, to, co- to ask to come on the show. Yes, yeah, so we've invited equal numbers on, mm-hmm. but for some reason, more men say yes than women. Do you know why? No. Well, maybe you should ask them. Yeah. <laughs> maybe ask I mean, them why. But obviously you know? the, their reason is always really polite. Oh, I'm, I'm too busy or... Yeah. And that's and that's the same on the male side, but whether that is a true reason. I mean, Mind maybe if they're, if they're more single founders that are female, then they probably are more busy, potentially. I mean, it might just be, as it happened, maybe we've asked like people in the wrong moment and it just, it just has turned out that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it seems a shame. It is, I mean, it's, you know, I guess, follow up with them, try yeah. it again, you yeah, know, yeah. be like, look, it would be really great to have you. But then you actually don't want to feel that. like you're badgering people. Then you then actually in the back of my mind, it's like, I don't want to then be badgering somebody over LinkedIn because it feels, do you know what I mean? No, I mean, I've badgered a lot of people. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> but, no, but, but like as a guy, you just yeah. think I don't want to use, I'm, I'm not on LinkedIn to badger somebody. Yeah. Whereas with a, yeah, with a, with a male, I guess I might be like, hey, Mm. Yeah, What's yeah. up? Which no, is, I, I get it, right? I mean, for you guys, it's obviously, you know, yeah. I mean, there's like well, a lot of founders in London out there, right, that you could interview. So it's not like, you know, the, the choice is, you know, limited or something. Yeah. Mm. Um, so you obviously do whatever is like reasonably sort of um, manageable for you guys, right? Um, but so, yeah, that, that, I would agree. It is a shame. And mm. I don't know. I mean, that's a pure assumption. But whether women... I mean, it's a generalization, right? But just feel less comfortable with speaking and public. That's what I, that's, and that's stuff what like I, that's that, what I wondered. You know, um, you know that is it's just a reason that a lot of people say. I don't know to the extent how much it's really true. Yeah. Actually, um, there will always be people that are more introvert yeah. than others. Yeah. Um, there are always be people who might also think that oh, you know. I don't know, like, I don't, I mean, I guess imposter syndrome, right? I don't have in, anything interesting to share. Yeah. Why are they asking me? Or my online profile is not up to scratch. Like, I'm not ready yet. I mean, that's like a very typical female yeah. thing to, to think it's as It's like well. the whole winging it thing as an entrepreneur that we discussed earlier. Yeah. Um, I hadn't thought of it like that. Yeah. But come on, like any exposure is good exposure. So get yourself out and, there. And as you know, there's absolutely no preparation required. There's no just, preparation required. Just be yourself because you are chat. amazing. You are inspiring. Yeah. Just come here, share your story and everybody will love it. Here, here. What, and what's your th- thoughts on diversity as a broader issue? Because clearly it doesn't just stop with the work to be done, including females. So yeah. what's your take on the work being done there? How much more could be done? How much more it's possible to do? like loads right i mean it's it's so it's such an emergent sort of um i guess can you call it industry i don't know like like a thing to tackle it is to me it is about even like coming from my png background right i mean it was it's like the slogan of png is like uh god i forgot actually i'm blanking out but like something saving lives and improving lives Mm. it's all about creating products that delight consumers Mm. right and i feel that if the same people the same group of people 
innovate products for the rest of the world, then we're just missing something, right? And uh, I feel like, you know, everybody should, or I mean, different groups of people should innovate, should have the ability to innovate for themselves, right? And because then we would make that group of people happier, yeah. right? And whether that's female, whether that's kind of like different ethnicity, um, whether that's different, you know, whatever sort of perception people people have of, of themselves that you know they f- don't feel that you're fitting into the, the common definition of what society like you know that sort of target consumer right um, I feel like actually also in terms of age um, that's actually something interesting actually I think the average age of an entrepreneur in London is 33 or 32 mm-hmm. and the average age of a successful entrepreneur probably with like an exit event or whatever um, is actually 42. So a lot of the narratives around entrepreneurship is like, oh, you know, it's all of these youngsters and innovating and being cool and techie is actually not really true. If you look at like the business success sort of um, track record, mm. it's actually the older people that start businesses are more successful. And, and, and why wouldn't they be? They've got more life experience and more contacts. More life experience, more contacts, more money, more savings behind them. Mm. You know, they can like test, like fail more in the beginning, right? Uh, figuring things out. Um, yeah, so I that's about social media amplification. Do you know what I mean? Because social media is generally skews young, and yeah. the audiences are going to pick up the stories and share and engage with that algorithmically are going to be young. That it supports its own narrative. Because, like, for instance, we had the founder of Spare Room on last week. He's done amazingly well, and yet I've not heard a peep from him on social media. Yeah, because he's just not a celebrated story. And yet there's loads of no. other people I see all the time. It's like he's probably also busy building his business yeah. and not like wasting the time on social media. Right? Yeah, I mean, there's some people who just you know love using the media to communicate and and to build a brand, which is completely fine. Mm. I mean, I'm one of them actually. But, well, but movement even, as well it allows you to build meetups and lots of things. There's no, exactly, of exactly. But even I'm not active on all social medias, right? I mean, I focus on LinkedIn these days because that's where I get like the most traction, right? I mean, like my last post on the conference has now almost 20,000 views, right? Wow. So Wait it's till you of, post this episode. I know. Well, <laughs> you better <laughs> kind of top that post. <laughs> I'm gonna like, measure. Um, so, so you find that where sort of you resonate most with your audience, right? But, but I think um, uh, definitely. I mean, you know, it doesn't mean that sort of if you're not on social media you're not a great entrepreneur just because you're less seen or whatever. You might just be busy building a really good business. Hmm. And and that actually is also like from an investment perspective. And, you know, when you actually know these people, right? And um, as in, like, for example, female founders, you just know them because you they come to your events, you've seen them working on their stuff, but they're not really vocal outside. So how do you find them, right? So I think as, you know, so that that's why I feel like really excited about, you know, so the future investment opportunities actually because I really get to see them really really early stage do you and do you think one of the best ways to support them initially is through fund structures fund what do you mean so as in we have more female skewing funds where female investors can deploy their capital into that fund and a fund manager who is female can then go in and reallocate capital as a means of getting uh, used to the startup market via immersion because I'm sure I said it on an episode before but the men have had a period of time where the venture capital industry has been going around for you know decades to adjust to the idea that there is this this part of the um, you know financial ecosystem where you you put money into a fund manager's hands and he will reallocate it and it's got an appropriate risk level. So we've mm-hmm. had more time to adjust to that mm-hmm. concept. So I just wonder if, if there's got to be a period as well where there'll be lots of uh, funds deploying towards female founders 
um, which might help some people who are a bit uncertain about it get confidence? Yeah, I think you need, as with everything, uh, I guess, an investment track record. Um, so the moment you have built the track record, I mean, I guess, thankfully, in the UK, you have EAS funds and stuff like that, where, you know, I would assume it's fairly easy to kind of like maybe pull together, I don't know, 10 to 20, 30 million from, you know, women and people in general who mm. want to invest in sort of like female founders once the fund management team has a proven track record of sourcing you know this type of um, investment opportunities right so i think it's it's all a matter of time um you know would i ever run an eis fund maybe <laughs> you know yeah. you never know um i think it might be even easier to do that than encouraging more women to invest directly as angel investors um, because they know that you know, sort of, it, it's it's managed in a proper way, um, and I guess like the you know the go-to-market channel for that would be sort of partnering with private banks that would have access to um, the high net worth uh, females, basically, right? Mm. To kind of propose that as like a asset uh, class apart from real estate and whatever they invest in. Yeah, because I still get male investors coming up to me and be like. I've come across Crowdcube and Cedars and just but, but want to dip my toe into angel investing. So many people are still kind of yeah. getting on the startup exactly. wave um, of all kinds of varieties. Yeah. Um, quick, quick fire. Quick fire. Yeah. See you. Um, so yeah, we had a couple of questions just to kind of get your, your views on things. So what's your prediction for the future if you have one? That's a very generic question. Yeah, just any prediction <laughs> any, that any. catches your fancy. Okay, well, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but the future is female. Right. Um, I think there's a lot of innovation to be realized in, you know, the female markets, whether it's for female consumers or, um, yeah, where uh, just innovation is lacking and in terms of yeah, certain industries. And do you think that's going to be like a, a decade ahead, like a dec the next decade will, will be that and then we're going to sort of merge into the sort of a, uh, a mixed hybrid future after that? I would hope so, actually. Um, I would hope so that Blooming Founders in, you know, 20 years time is maybe even redundant or maybe becomes like just like, you know, a player like anybody else, right? I mean, there are fintech VCs and there's like whatever, you know, people f focusing on certain verticals and we just become like a specialist, um, you know, incubator or funder of, of you know, certain types of innovation. Um, yeah, but I think there's a long way to go. I don't think it's going to be solved in like the next uh, 10 or 20 years. I think it's going to be take longer. And do you think the countries that adopt this viewpoint are going to see reap the benefits of definitely. newer world economies, etc.? Definitely, okay. definitely. Yeah, I think, I mean, we're so early on though in like globally. I mean, if you look at female entrepreneurship, it's, you know, pretty hyped in the US now coming more and more in the uk but it's so like there's an, it's absolutely white space everywhere else mm -hmm. next one a startup book resource or tool that you'd recommend well i guess can i recommend my own book yes you can <laughs> yeah for sure so obviously dear female founder go read it if you want to have a different perspective um from you know female entrepreneurs and some investors actually um you know, on, on the advice that it would share to early stage startups. Um, a tool I would recommend is Lean Canvas. Um, that's a tool that I discovered, you know, in my sort of early stage journey. And I think it really helps you focusing on validating the problem and what type of customers you're speaking to. Um, I'm gonna add another little bit onto that. Is there another book that you possibly have in the pipeline that you're, you might work on? 
You know what? I have heard so much about the hard things about the hard things. I've never had the chance to read it. So I think that's kind of like the next book that I'm going to read. Okay. Um, and the best advice you've ever given or received? I would say to, um, well, received. I I would say sort of, you know, um, it's almost like, it's, it's not like one sentence, but it's, it's basically get to know yourself better and and find out who you really are what are your strengths and what is almost like what are you what is your purpose like on earth right and uh, in your work like what is the one meaningful thing maybe not one but a couple of meaningful things that you are sort of positioned to do better than anybody else and you know the the world and and do that right so forget about societal expectations parental expectations everybody everybody else just focus on you um and getting to yourself better it took me over a year actually to do that and it's still like ongoing Mm. um and focus on that um and the best uh, advice i would give to i guess startup founders is never stop building meaningful relationships because this industry is completely reliant on it and you wouldn't get nowhere if you're just sitting in your cubicle home, whatever, building your amazing product, but you never get out there, mm-hmm. right? So put yourself out there, go to events, you know, be part of a co-working space, whichever co-working space you might want to choose. Um, just keep on building relationships, but make sure they're meaningful. And, and to close out, is there anything that you'd like to ask people listening? Is anything they can help you with? Yes. So my big project for 2020 is um, going more towards the content production and all that sort of like side of things. And uh, we will be looking for corporate sponsors for that. So any sort of brand that wants to, you know, just kind of like show their brand in a different light, you know, like maybe a brand that is focusing on on women. Mm -hmm. Right. And also wants to show now that they are, you know, so supporting women in startups and business. A great opportunity mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah so if anybody knows uh, anyone marketing director uh, or you know CMO type of person then please feel free to connect me with mm. that person well we wish you the very best with it and thank you so much for coming on it's been great thank you guys thank, thank you for thank coming you very on much if you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations we'd love to get your feedback our Twitter handle is at the startup Mike MIC or get us an email or ed at startupmicrodose.com if you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.